Good evening. Don't leave me hanging. Good evening. Good to see you all. You can turn in your Bibles with me to First Chronicles, where we are in chapter 7. We are going to briefly summarize chapter 7 through 9, and then we're going to spend a little time, I believe, if we have time, in chapter 10. And you'll be glad to know that that gets us through what is oftentimes a more difficult portion of Scripture to both read and study and even teach. Uh, that is the first section of First Chronicles. Uh, we've taken the time over the, just the last couple of weeks to go through the introduction, some of the important genealogies, also some of the important accounts that are mixed in there in these genealogies. So you haven't missed anything, except that I have not read through long lists of names of cities and descendants that are relatively unimportant to us, certainly important to the Jews of the time in which this book was written. But let's open in a word of prayer. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you. We know that you love us. We know that you love us. How fortunate we are to know that, but also to experience your love. Lord, we ask for your love and mercy and kindness toward us and in forgiveness. Lord God, we fail to be the kind of people that we desire to be, let alone the kind of people that you've called us to be. So we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your mercy, your grace. We know that you abound in mercy, that you're long-suffering, that you show compassion to thousands of the descendants of those that serve you. We ask for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 7. I'm actually not going to read verses... uh, actually any of the verses until we get down to verse uh, 20. I'm just going to summarize. In verses 1 through 5, we have the descendants of Issachar, one of the children of Jacob or Israel. His descendants are mentioned there. Uh, We have the sons of Tola mentioned in verse 2. They were all leaders over their families, and so they're mentioned. And I like this. Their descendants were listed as 22,600 fighters. And this was during the reign of David, king of Israel, which was from 1010 to 790 B.C., so uh, a tribe that knew how to fight. And so they had a, a great fighting force. And then uh, we have the sons and grandsons of Uzier mentioned. Their descendants listed over 36,000 fighters. So you might say that the tribe of Issachar was, a, uh, was a, a warring tribe, a fighting tribe, and indeed they were. In fact, the descendants of Issachar uh, were listed as 87,000 fighters in all. So that's something uh, worth noting. We get to the descendants of Benjamin in verses 6 through 12. The names are mentioned there. And uh, we'll talk a little bit uh, later about this because there's some discrepancies when you look at the different uh, genealogies and and listing of descendants for Benjamin. They sometimes uh, have some controversies there we'll talk about as we get further on. But for this evening, right now, uh, verses 6 through 12 give us the sons of Benjamin. They're mentioned, and their sons are mentioned. Here we're told that they were also leaders over their families and that the Benjamites were also great fighters. In fact, they had uh, uh, 22,034, looks like, uh, fighters during the reign of David as well. And uh, they also, that's the sons of Bella, but then they had the sons of Becker, 20,200. And then you get to the sons and grandsons of Jedial. They were all leaders as well. Their descendants, though, are listed as 17,000. Uh, 200. So why are all these fighters mentioned? Well, different tribes were called to do different things within the nation of Israel. You know, the Levites were the priests, and Judah was the ruling tribe. Ephraim was also a ruling tribe. 
Some of these lesser-known tribes, though, had many of the fighters that accomplished God's will. And we see that listed there. Uh, We also have the descendants of Ur. They were called Shupites and Hupites. And they're mentioned in verse 12. And the Hushites are mentioned as well. So the different people groups or different portions of the tribes are mentioned. These were peoples that came back to the land after the exile. And this identifies their lineage so that they could be incorporated within the nation of Israel, and they had the pedigree or the documentation necessary to serve the Lord in that way. Okay, now we get to Naphtali's descendants, just your descendants, just really in verse 13, just one verse, not much here. Uh, not, can be, not a lot can be said of Naphtali's descendants, uh, just what's written here, and that Naphtali was the son of Israel and his concubine Bilhah. So, Sort of unremarkable, but their information is listed, at least what was available to Ezra as he compiled this book. Then we get to Manasseh's descendants. We've actually talked about the half-tribe of Manasseh already. Remember that Manasseh and Ephraim were the sons of Joseph. The tribe of Joseph was broken up into two tribes, the tribe or half-tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim. The half-tribe of Manasseh was further broken up into two other half of the half-tribes. One half of the tribe of Manasseh was in the east. They were such a large tribe. Uh, They were on the eastern side of the Jordan. The other was on the western side of the Jordan. We've already talked about some of this, Uh, but they're mentioned here, and uh, we learn about Asriel, the descendant of Manasseh, Maker, the son of Manasseh, and uh, some of the things I want to mention, again, verses 14 through 19, I'm not going to read through the names, but uh, we're told that Asriel, in verse... uh, or chapter 5, verse 24, uh, we've talked about these, these descendants already. Uh, they were the ones on the eastern side of the Jordan. This maker son of Manasseh was the son of Manasseh and his Aramean concubine. Okay, And that means that you know he wasn't directly related to the other descendants, and he chose to be separate, and that's one of the reasons the half-tribe of Manasseh was split into two other halves. Uh, But having said that, one thing we do know is he was one of the bravest warriors who was famous for his actions in battle. All of them were. And so again, we see in this particular section a recognition of the warriors uh, who were coming back to the land. Now, one of the other things I want to mention is of the tribes that were coming back to the land at this time, very, very few were from these tribes. Most were from Judah, Levi, and Benjamin. There were some from the other tribes, the other northern tribes, but many of them had gone into captivity hundreds of years before Babylon conquered Israel. So they weren't the lost tribes, but they were certainly fewer in number. And so these are mentioned here, but they are certainly of lesser importance to Ezra and to his chronicle of history. Now, we're also told that Maker, who we've mentioned already, being the uh, son of Manasseh and an Aramean concubine, Uh, He was also the father of Gilead. They called the land east of the Jordan the land of Gilead. He took a wife from these people that I mentioned, the Hupites and the Shupites, and his sisters mentioned as well. But then we get to Zelophehad. Now this is interesting, and uh, in verse 15 uh, of chapter 7, this is an interesting account in the history of Israel. We're told that another descendant was, was named Zelophehad, who had only daughters. Now, the fact that it's mentioned that he had only daughters shouldn't be received as this idea, well, he didn't have any sons. It's just that the inheritance of the land was based on a patriarchal society. 
So if someone like this had no sons and only daughters, they wouldn't be able to pass on the inheritance that God had given them. So that created a bit of a problem. And this is one of the interesting accounts in Scripture. It's given to us in Numbers 26 and 27. We're told, and I'll summarize, Zelophehad, or excuse me, Zelophehad, had five daughters but no sons. And these daughters are realizing, we're going to lose our inheritance. There's, there's no brother. We don't have a brother to receive the inheritance. So they approached the tabernacle to speak with Moses about their inheritance. Uh, they wouldn't have received any under, uh, within the land under the second census, or after the second census was taken. So the Lord, you know, Moses had this moment where the law didn't have any guidance as to how to handle this situation. Have you ever found yourself in that kind of situation? People will often come to me and they'll say, well, we need to make this decision, Pastor, and we really can't find a scripture that tells us whether we should go to my in-laws on Christmas Eve or my parents on Christmas Eve. You know, we just can't figure out which one is the right one to do, you know, and I know that sounds a little silly, but for those of you who are especially recently married, this is a big deal. So... (laughs) What happens under these circumstances, you need to make a decision. There really isn't a right or a wrong answer per se, or at least you can't find God's word on page 26 that says your in-laws this year, your parents next year. You know, the wisdom of Solomon, by the way. So what do you do? What do you do in your life when you have a situation that comes up that you can't quote chapter and verse with? Does anyone want to tell me how we are led or by whom we are led? The Holy Spirit. Exactly. And this is where I think it's vitally important that as Christians, we allow God's Holy Spirit to lead and direct us in matters when there may not necessarily be a right or wrong answer. Well, there certainly is a God's will answer. But you may not be able to find a verse, a chapter, that gives you the answer. I think so many times we're looking for that. We would love it if they gave us a book that told you what to do, like a little, you ever see those uh, diaries or those little planners, like a daily bread? What if you had your own personal daily bread that said, today you'll eat chicken, tomorrow fish? I think so many times as Christians, we want that kind of direction. It would make things a little easier, wouldn't it? But what does the Bible tell us even from the Old Testament? Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And so being led by the Spirit is how we walk in Christ, according to his word. That will help you, but here's what happened. This situation had Moses in a quandary because he didn't know what to do. The law didn't have any provision to give these women any inheritance. So what do you do? Well, they came to Moses, they complained. And the Lord instructed Moses regarding the transfer of property as an inheritance. He completely, that is, the Lord completely agreed with the concern of these five daughters of Zelophehad or Zelophehad. I have it spelled in two different ways, two different, I think it's Zelophehad. I think it was a typo before, but who knows? Unimportant. Actually, Zelophehad's dad was probably Zelophehad, but anyway, bad joke. He added a requirement to protect the property rights of daughters without brothers. You needed some addendum to the law and to the property rights in order to accommodate others who were found to be in this situation. So they 
made a modification or an addendum to their law in order to address this, which I think is great. Does that mean you can change the word of God? No. It means that the word of God and the Holy Spirit will guide you, and where the word of God is silent, the Spirit will tell you what to do. Okay? That, it's not really that simple, and I think you have to learn to live that way. Anyway, this requirement was, was added, and the Lord instructed Moses regarding the protection of tribal inheritance. This is in Numbers 36 as well. Uh, the reason I have to mention this is because it comes up in Numbers 26, Numbers 27, and also in Numbers 36. So it kind of was a big deal. At least it, it was for them. The leaders were concerned, though, that they would forfeit their tribal inheritance by marriage. So they completely agreed, or he completely agreed, the Lord, with, with the concern of the tribal heads of the clan of Gilead. So what's happening here is that you have some people worried that they're not going to get any inheritance, and there are others that are concerned if they marry these individuals, they'll lose their inheritance. So people want to know, how are we going to deal with this? You know, you can't give the inheritance of, of someone else to the wife, but they don't get any inheritance, and how does this whole thing work? Well, he added a requirement that daughters without brothers must marry within their tribe. Problem solved. See, that was the problem. They didn't want the tribal land to leave one tribe and go to the other. These are sort of like states within a nation, right? So if the woman kept her inheritance, if they decided to do that, but she married someone outside the tribe, then the land would go to that family, and now this tribe Manasseh's descendants would lose some of their land. I know it sounds a little silly, but it was a big deal. So how did they solve it? Well, unfortunately, I guess you might say unfortunately, these daughters, if they were going to get married, had to marry within their tribe, which seems a little restrictive, but it did solve the problem, didn't it? There's a great principle there. There are always practical solutions to practical problems. Sometimes we want a spiritual solution to a practical problem. And that's just not how these things work. The practical problems generally have practical solutions. And this is a practical solution. Now, what if you were one of these women and, and you know, you wanted to marry someone outside your tribe? Well, then you didn't get any inheritance. That's just the way, I guess the inheritance went to the other sisters, you know? It's just the way it worked. Okay, a big deal, but they solved the problem. The principle is what's important to us. Then we have the descendants of Maker and his wife, and then you have Gilead, and they're mentioned there through verse 19. Then we get into verses 20 through 29. Again, not going to read through all the list of names. Ephraim's descendants. You have the descendants of Ephraim mentioned in verses 20 and 21. And then an interesting account, one you would pass by if you didn't take the time to do what I've done and read through all of these names and cities and find these little gems. This is one in particular. I want to read it for you. Verse 21. Uh, in chapter 7, it says, in the latter part, Ezer and Iliad were killed by native-born men of Gath when they went down to seize their livestock. Their father Ephraim mourned them for many days, and his, and his relatives came to comfort him. And when he lay with his wife again, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, he named him Bariah, because, and that name sounds like the Hebrew word for misfortune, because there had been misfortune in his family. 
And then it goes on to say his daughter was Shera, who built the lower and upper uh, Beth Horn, as well as Uzin Shera. And it's interesting. Uh, some of the women who are mentioned in these genealogies have, have, have accomplished great things. And certainly that was the case for his daughter. Okay. Terrible situation. Misfortune. And again, Benaiah uh, really does sound like the Hebrew word for misfortune. The misfortune is that if you were Benaiah and you were born, it isn't your fault, but now you're called misfortune for the rest of your life, right? Oftentimes what happened when they did that, it was a sign of, of mourning, but many Hebrews had two names. I think of, uh, about Benjamin. Uh, Benjamin uh, had the name son of my right hand. But because his mother, Rachel, died in childbirth, he was called Benoni, son of misery. Okay? Well, they didn't call him Benoni for his whole life. They called him Benjamin. So that would oftentimes happen. Okay? Part of the culture of, of the Middle East and certainly Hebrew culture. Having said that, there are these men, children of Ephraim were mentioned, Ezer and Iliad. They're killed by the men of Gath while they were stealing their livestock. Now, I just want to stop and say this. This is another principle. We've talked about the principle of practical solutions to practical problems and being led by the Spirit. Here's another little application. You will suffer the consequences of bad behavior. You know, I oftentimes think a lot of times what people think we need to do to help people is not allow them to suffer the consequences of bad behavior. For example, stealing. A child goes into the candy store. I think everyone here has probably experienced this either as an individual or as a parent. When they're really little and you're driving through the supermarket in that cart and you turn your head, they're so slick and so fast. They know what a candy bar looks like. So they get in the line. You turn around and put the milk on the belt and... and they, they got it in their pocket, and they know how to hide it, too. You get out of the store, and you find out, guess what? <laughs> they stole the candy bar. Now, it's a little different than when they're 5, 6, 7, 8, 12, 21, and they're stealing things. Now, here's what happened to these men. They saw these men of Gath had cattle. They were supposed to conquer the land. But instead of conquering the land and taking the spoil of a victory... They went into a sort of way that they were sneaky and just tried to steal their cattle. That isn't what God told them to do. Interestingly enough, he told them to attack them and take all their things. But they were trying to go outside of God's will, and they suffered the consequences of doing this. I don't know exactly what happened, but while they were trying to steal their livestock, sneak in and take them, Instead of conquering them and facing them and dealing with them how God had called them to, and they're not going to be blessed. For what does the law, well, the law is not written yet at this time, but ultimately the law codified a very important truth. Thou shall not steal. Okay, so what do they do? They decide to steal. And they suffer the consequences. They're killed. Now, the men of Gath, anyone want to tell me who the most famous person from Gath was? Goliath, right, of Gath. So he's from Gath, and, and he had, a, uh, I think, five brothers, four brothers or something like that who were also rather large. I imagine this is much earlier than the time of David. There was a lot of big dudes, okay? So they go into this area thinking, well, we don't want to fight them. Remember, there's giants in the land, right? And we, we don't want to deal with them. We just want to steal their stuff. And of course, the conquest hadn't happened yet. They really weren't in the, t in the time where God had been calling them to conquer. They certainly hadn't been called to steal. They go in there, rather than dealing with them, and they get killed. 
because they were doing something wrong. So when those of us and our children and people we care about, when they actually do the wrong thing, sometimes the consequences of doing the wrong thing is, is severe. They're severe. And you have to suffer consequences in order to understand these things are wrong. Part of the problem today with young people is they don't. I mean, I'm thinking about what's happening, especially in the city, but around the country with this sort of no bail deal. Where people, you know, they rob a bank. There's this guy, he's robbed a bank I don't know how many times. He goes in, he doesn't have a weapon. He just tries to rob the bank. They he I don't know if he threatens that he has a weapon or whatever. They give him the money, he gets caught. They know it is. They, They lock him up, but then they release him without bail. So what does he do? On the way out of the police station, he goes and he does it again. Any surprise there? So the principle here is, oh, yes, they, they were still in a phase where, you know, this is early on, this is before the conquest, but, but still, what they were doing was wrong, okay? That's the point. And they suffered for it. These men were killed. Now, Ephraim mourned their death for many days with the comfort of his relatives. And he had this other son, which we mentioned, and a daughter, and uh, things seemed to be okay from there. But, you know, the family suffered misfortune. And this is another thing I just want to point out. When your children and others within the family, when they do the wrong thing and they suffer the consequences, guess who suffers with them? We do. See, I used to say things to my parents like, well, it doesn't affect anybody but me. And then my parents would make it very clear. I was up all night waiting for you to come home, and you didn't come home. I didn't sleep at all. Your behavior affected me. We sometimes think that our behavior doesn't affect those around us, but it does. Look what it did to this family. They suffered misfortune. So part of what we need to communicate to people is your consequences bring suffering in your life, but they also bring suffering in the lives of those who care about you and in the lives of others. So that's a little important thing there, but I think it's, I think it's worth noting. Now, one other thing I want to mention, and it's mentioned here in this particular uh, genealogy or listing of descendants, is a man by the name of Repha, the son of Ephraim. He, he's the ancestor of Joshua, the son of Nun. If you look at verse 25, we were talking about the conquest later on. It says, Repha was his son, Reshef his son. It goes down the list, and it says, Nun his son, and Joshua his son. Now, what's interesting about this is Joshua of the tribe of Ephraim ultimately later on, led the conquest and they dealt with these giants and they dealt with these people that were responsible for killing his ancestors or part of his family. Ultimately, but they did it in God's timing and according to God's word. They didn't try to steal their cattle or their livestock. They dealt with them according to God's will. And so eventually, of course, all the way down to the time of David, then Goliath is dealt with, but he's a descendant much later down the line. Anyway, I digress. Okay, so that's an interesting uh, application. Then we get to Asher's descendants, which are mentioned there in verses 30 through 40. There's a lot of them. I'm not going to go through it. Uh, But they were brave warriors. They were outstanding leaders over their families, and their fighters were 26,000 in number. So they're mentioned. Okay, now we get to Benjamin's descendants. Now, remember I said, uh, excuse me, now we get to, uh, yeah, Benjamin's descendants. You remember I mentioned that in uh, chapter 7, verse 6, Benjamin's descendants were mentioned there, and they're mentioned again. 
Uh, For this reason, and some of the names in this list, remember that Ezra is alive at the exile after they've been taken into captivity. What he's doing is piecing together documents that have been either lost and some have been destroyed. And what he's trying to do is take all of these sources and put it together and make sense of it. Sometimes he would have half a page. And so rather than always try to figure it out exactly, he he put what he had together and tried to make sense of it based on the other ancient texts. As a result, sometimes uh, things get a little jumbled. And they don't always make sense. And it doesn't mean that the Word of God isn't true. Just remember that this section of the Word of God is largely genealogical records, and you can imagine how they would get mixed up very easily. Sometimes I'll be looking at my notes, and uh, one of my pages get out of place. And suddenly, I, something's wrong. How did I get in chapter 11? You know, so that does happen uh, sometimes in the Scripture. But here's what we find out in verses 1 and 2. And uh, not important, and we're in chapter 8 now. Uh, We're told that Benjamin was the father of Bela, the firstborn, and it goes on to list his sons. Now, there are four genealogies for Benjamin. One in in Genesis, one in Numbers, uh, the one we've just read in 1 Chronicles chapter 7, and this one, so four. And they all seem to be a little different or even contradictory, even within the first generation. Now, there may be some explanations for that. The one name that comes up a lot, though, is Bela. B-E-L-A, does seem to be consistently his firstborn. But everything after that seems to break down. Now, there, there could be some reasons. It may be because many men were known to have gone by more than one name, which I already mentioned, which confuses things. Uh, it may have been because the tribe of Benjamin was nearly destroyed. Later on in the book of Judges in chapters 20 and 21, they're almost completely wiped out by the other tribes because of a situation that takes place. Uh, with a war between the different tribes. It has to do with a, a concubine. Things go bad. And basically what happens is they're nearly wiped out. In fact, they don't even have enough wives. And so I think they get knocked down to like just about 600 men. So you can imagine with all of that, a lot of it was lost. A lot of their history was lost. By the time you get to Ezra, hundreds of years later, you have a shortage of records and some confusion of the records. So who knows what the cause is. But their genealogical records may have been lost or in disarray. And another thing to mention, when you're talking about genealogies, the the term son can also mean descendant. It's often used to mean a descendant, not strictly one's child. It can mean just a descendant several generations later. So I think what happened here is some of these genealogical records just got a little confused uh, because there were a lot of sources. Ezra did his best to try to homogenize it and preserve it based on what he had. Now, it also may be that the abbreviated genealogy that we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 6 through 12, isn't actually Benjamin at all, but the tribe of Zebulun, because Zebulun is, is not included at all, completely lost. So some suggest, well, maybe it wasn't Benjamin at all. Maybe he just had a portion of it, and maybe it actually was one of the other tribes. We simply don't know. And this has been suggested because both Zebulun and Dan are not included in this book. Dan's not really a surprise because they left their tribal land early on after the conquest, moved up north, and were ultimately one of the first tribes to betray God and and, and live contrary to his word. So what you're seeing is the consequences of sin. What you're seeing are the consequences of actions on the part of these tribes against and contrary to God's will. 
it resulted in an abbreviation of the records that were available at that time. And so you have the descendants are mentioned here. I'm not going to get into any more, except until we get to verse 29 and uh, through 40. And uh, also, if you go back, and you actually go ahead, you'll see in chapter 9, verses 35 through 44, you also have this information for us. Uh, we are in chapter 8 at the moment. And uh, what I am going to say is that these are the descendants of Benjamin that get us to Saul, the first king of Israel. So if you just look at verses 29 through 40, you can jump ahead. Um, let's see, here we are. 29 through 40. You have a list of, again, I'm not going to get into all these names, but it starts with GLL, and it makes its way all the way down through Ner, uh, all the way down to Kish, the father of Saul, in verse 33. Saul, the father of Jonathan, Malkishua, Abinadab, and Eshbal. Then you have the sons of Jonathan, uh, the sons of his son, Micah, all the way down till you get to verse 40. And we're told that they were brave warriors as well. Okay, a couple of things I want to mention. This is the ancestry of Saul. Why would that be important? Saul was the first king of Israel. And he was a Benjamite. And he was the father of Jonathan, who we're familiar with, Malkishua, Abinadad, and Eshbal. Now, the descendants of Jonathan were Meribal, uh, or Mephibosheth, who was the son of Jonathan and the father of Micah. And then you have the descendants of Micah, and they're mentioned. Uh, they were all brave warriors, skilled archers, by the way. And if you remember, uh, when Jonathan was killed, uh, David declared mourning, and, and he said, listen, uh, when Saul and Jonathan were killed, uh, one of the things they could do productively is learn to use the bow. And that was a way of honoring the tribe of Benjamin, who were known to be great archers. Plus, it was a practical way of dealing with the grief. But again, I digress. He had many descendants, 150 in all. Uh, that is the descendants of Micah. So God bless the tribe. All right, then we get to what will probably be, I think, it for tonight. We'll just stop in, in, in chapter uh, nine. And the reason I like to take my time with some of these things, because these are interesting accounts with wonderful applications. Now, we don't need to go into every name, but I don't want to skip over some of these more important lessons that are in included. Now, going into chapter nine, because we've already looked at chapter eight in summary, we have Jacob's descendants that returned from exile. This is in chapter nine, a list of all of those individuals, while Ezra is writing this, having looked back at the history, he is now listing those that made it back to the promised land. And in verse 1 we read, actually I want to read verses 1 and 2, it says that all Israel was listed in the, in the genealogies recorded in the book of the kings of Israel. And the people of Judah were taken captive to Babylon because of what? Their unfaithfulness sort of a reoccurring theme. There are consequences to our actions. Now, the first to resettle on their own property in their own towns were some Israelites, priests, Levites, and temple servants. And so we're given a list of those men, but it's interesting. They were the first to come back. Who were the most faithful to return to the land of God's promise? The priests. Ezra was a priest. And so he's making it clear. The priests were really those that led the people back to the promised land. Many of the tribes had gotten comfortable in the land of idols in Babylon. But it was the priests 
and the temple servants and those who were called to the things of God that led the people back to where God had called them to be. And so that's what we're told there. And that the people of Judah were taken captive to Babylon for their unfaithfulness to God. This took place in 586 B.C. Overwhelming principle of this study tonight is unfaithfulness, doing the wrong thing, disobeying God, rejecting God's word, ultimately ends in consequences. For the children of Israel, they were taken out of God's promises. They forfeited the promises of God. And we've seen that concept or that theme repeated over and over again, even this evening. That's what happens. There are consequences to being unfaithful. There are consequences to doing the wrong thing. Okay, then we're told that there were those from the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh, who who lived in Jerusalem, 690 men from the tribe of Judah, 956 from the tribe of Benjamin, leaders over their families. That's in verses 4 through 9. And then we have those of the priests and Levites who lived in Jerusalem, covered in verses 10 through 16 and verse 34. There were 1,790 priests who were leaders. Uh, Levites are mentioned there who lived in the villages of the Netophathites. That's a tough one. And then we're told in verses uh, 17 through 27, it's kind of lengthy, but this is the summary, that there, the 212 Levites who were gatekeepers around the temple are mentioned there. Think of these guys as like the guys that guard the White House, like the Secret Service. Their job was to protect God's house from vandals, to protect God's house from those who would uh, disparage it or desecrate it. Uh, there, was, there were those in verses 17 through 18 stationed at the king's gate on the east. Their job was to guard that gate. There were those stationed at the thresholds of the temple. They were the Kohathites who had guarded the entrance of the tabernacle and the temple. And Phineas was one of them. You'll remember Phineas. I believe we talked about him last week. He was once the chief gatekeeper. And the Lord was with him, the book of Numbers tells us in chapter 25. Uh, they were registered by their genealogy. They had been assigned to their positions, believe it or not, by David with Samuel's counsel, we're told in verse 22. Remember, Ezra's writing this reflectively, looking back. They guarded the gates on all four sides of the house of the Lord. Now, the temple hasn't been rebuilt. These guys are coming back. They're going to rebuild the temple, and these guys want their old jobs back. They're ready to go out there and guard the temple, to build the temple, to restore God's glory to his people. These people are really reconstructionists. They want to go back and rebuild. And the priests led this effort. And these gatekeepers, who that was their job and calling, knew that unless we rebuild God's house, we are not fulfilling our calling. And so they're all listed there, which is important because they were very faithful to God's call. Uh, they had been, uh, they were guarding the gates on all four sides of the house of the Lord. And uh, by the way, they had a way of doing this. Those from the villages served for uh, seven-day periods. And there were four principal gatekeepers responsible for guarding the temple at night, even at night. I just want you to see the zeal for the house of the Lord that these men had. And we know the prophets said that one of the ways we would know Jesus in the New Testament was his zeal, his passion for the house of the Lord. Listen, there are people here who have a zeal for this house. And this is just a house of worship. This isn't the temple in Jerusalem. A zeal for the things of God. It can come in the form of just making sure things are set up right or, or vacuuming up a spill in the back or being really careful with their coffee. <laughs> just knowing you're in the house of the Lord. This is no ordinary place. This is a house of worship. It's not a cafe. 
You know, it's not a restaurant. It's not a gymnasium. It's the house of the Lord. These guys understood that the house of the Lord needed to be guarded, protected, and treated with honor and respect. So they become a wonderful example for us. Okay. Some of them were in charge of the articles used in the temple services. Others took care of the furnishings. Others, uh, the other articles of the temple, the supplies. Actually, I want to read some of this because it may seem like minutia, but I'm going to read it. Verse 28, some of them were in charge of the articles used in the temple service. They counted them when they were brought in and when they were taken out. We do that with all the equipment, don't we, Jim? You know, we're, how many tablets do we have? Are all the cables put away, right? A little different, but others were assigned to take care of the furnishings and all the other articles of the sanctuary, as well as the flour and wine and the oil, incense and spices. But some of the priests took care of mixing the spices and a Levite named Mat, here we go, Matahiah, uh, or Matathiah, the firstborn son of Shalom, the Korathite, was entrusted with the responsibility for baking the offering bread. Now that may seem like nothing to you, but it wasn't nothing to God. Oh, what's your job? What's your high and holy calling? Oh, I, I bake the bread. You see, sometimes we can look at what we're doing for the Lord and what the Lord has called us to do, and we can think, ah, I'm not really doing much. You know, oh, I clean up after service. Oh, I get here early, I set up. Oh, I vacuum. Oh, I make the coffee. Oh, I set up communion. And nobody really comes along and says, man, those communion cups were lined up perfectly. But you know what? These things are important to God. They're so important that we got the guy's name who was in charge of baking the bread when they came back to the house of the Lord. Why is that important? Because it's important to God. Do what God has called you to do. No matter how small it may seem, God notices, and God's people appreciate it. Okay, so mixing the spices, baking the bread, all important. And then uh, let's see in verse 33, uh, oh, some of, in verse 32, some of the Kohathite brothers were in charge of preparing for every Sabbath. The bread sat out on the table. Because that was their job. In verse 33, those who were musicians, head of Levite families, stayed in the rooms of the temple and were exempt from other duties because they were responsible for the work day and night. And that's why the musicians don't carry anything. No, I'm just kidding. No, we do. We all do. But no, here's what we're telling is they had a job and that's why they were, they were in the temple so often they weren't responsible for some of the other things, but they were responsible for the work day and night. And all these were heads of Levite families, chiefs, and it goes on to list them. Uh, All of this tells us that these little jobs may seem unimportant and insignificant to us. They're not insignificant to God. Finally, we get to verses 34, excuse me, 35 through 44, and we get the descendants of Benjamin again, a listing of the descendants of Benjamin. Uh, This is given to us because it's the genealogy of Saul. And it's given in the form of a genealogy as opposed to uh, sort of like a listing of names. It is given in, in, in that way. And all of the sons are mentioned. Then you can go through Jonathan all the way through, which we've already covered. It's sort of a, a repetition of what we studied already. Okay, so that brings us to the end of our study, a number of different uh, practical exhortations. With that, it looks like the kids are coming back from Calvary Kids. Let's close in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and these little practical exhortations and encouragements. We ask that you'd help us to take to heart the things that are important to you, that we might serve your people, love your people. To serve you and to love you is to serve you and serve your people and to love them. We thank you. 
continue to pray that you'd speak to us through this book in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great rest of the week.